This morning I'm going to read from three wildly different passages from the book of Acts. And even though they're wildly different, they all say the same thing. So I'd like for you this morning to listen carefully to what that same thing is. And uh, so the the first passage comes from chapter 6 and is verses 1 through 7. Uh, If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's on page uh, 1682. All right, Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read that. Uh, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number, number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So now we skip to Acts chapter 12. We're going to read verses 20 through 24. Uh, If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 1695. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Our final passage comes from chapter 19. And this verses. 11 through 20. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 1707. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, and many of those who were now believers 
came, professing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So um, you have three very different stories. But they all say the same thing. What is the same thing they say? The word of the Lord increased. The word of God prevailed. And it grew. This is a common theme. What I mean is that in the book of Acts, this is a common theme that, that pulls it together, that ties all these different stories apart. As a matter of fact, it probably, those themes tie every single story in the book of Acts together. Like the book of Acts is the story of this word increasing. And that means that it's a big picture. A big picture is something that is what is really going on even as the story plays out. It's what's really happening. And occasionally, the author, Luke, guided by the Holy Spirit, pops out and he says, let me tell you what's really happening. The word is increasing. And uh, I would think that if that made it into the Bible, that it is important for us to consider. And uh, so that's what we're going to do this morning. My goal this morning is to try to tell you how this, this word increased and why that's important for you to know and appreciate. So here is what I'm going to tell you. The increasing word is a big picture perspective that suggests that Acts is the parable of the sower come to life. That the word is designed to overcome many challenges and that it helps to evaluate our own lives. So the, the first part of this is that the theme of the increasing word is a big picture perspective. And so it tells you what is really going on. It makes the details of a story a lot more significant. But for instance, let's say that you had gone to the Grand Canyon and you saw a young man in his mid-20s hiking out of the Grand Canyon and a group of like friends and family were there and they cheer him just as he gets out. And you might think to yourself, wow, well that's great that he had such a, a appreciation, friends cheering him on. That is a steep and long hike out of that canyon. Seven and a half miles of trail, I know, because I've done it. But let's just say that uh, a woman is there. She sees you looking at that, and she comes over and she says, when he had his accident, the doctors told him he might not ever walk again. All of a sudden, that big picture lends a whole lot more significance that extends much further than just the seven and a half miles, right? Hiking out of that canyon for him is a monumental achievement. And so a big picture helps to increase the significance of something. Um, one time, I was having coffee in a coffee shop and, uh, with, a, with, a, with a friend uh, of mine, another man. And uh, so we're having coffee, and we were chatting up a storm, and we were talking church in, in polite you know, coffee shop levels of volume. And uh, another man overheard us, and he came walking on over, and he said, did I hear you say ecclesiology? So thank you, Aaron, for bringing up that word. Okay, uh, ecclesiology, a churchy word for church. And uh, yeah, and it turned out he was a, a, a brand new 
youth pastor just moved into Flagstaff that week. Now, anyone who knows the word ecclesiology is likely to be that type of person who is thinking, I hope I could join in this conversation. And so I had to tell him, I said, well, it is so wonderful to meet you. And let me say thank, uh, uh, welcome to Flagstaff. I would love to have a conversation with you, you know, any other time. But in point of fact, the reason why we're here talking church is because we were both leaders in a same church years ago. And there was an event that was unexpected and very complicated. And both of us offended each other. And now years down the road, we are both here actually checking to make sure that we're good. His eyes got really big. <laughs> and uh, the big picture made him understand, yeah, this is a different kind of conversation and it actually is really deep and significant and they need to do their thing. Now, so what I'm telling you is that in Luke, when he pulls out, and sorry, Acts, when the author Luke pulls out and he says the word increased he's giving you, the reminder of the big picture, what is really going on. And so what I'm going to be uh, developing is that the big picture of the increasing word suggests that the book of Acts is the parable of the sower come to life. I do want to get a little bit of a running start here, though. Um, when the book of Acts was written, or actually when Jesus gave this parable of the sower, which I expect you're familiar with, the, the phrase, the word of the Lord, was something that people were already pretty familiar with. Uh, the word of God, the word of the Lord. If you, if you do a search for that theme in the Old Testament, you will find it on the Instagram posts of all of the prophets. So basically, the word of the Lord would come to a man and it would make him a prophet. You actually couldn't just wake up one morning in Old Testament times and say, I feel like being a prophet today. No. You only got commissioned as a prophet if the word of the Lord had come to you. And that's what would make him a prophet. And then he would have to carry that word. As a matter of fact, not all prophets liked the word of the Lord when it came to them. Uh, the, the most outstanding was named Jonah. I think you have heard his story. All right. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah, he said, no. And since you know that story, you know that the word won. As a matter of fact, it said later after the whole uh, belly of the whale or belly of the fish story, and he's back on dry ground, it says the word of the Lord came a second time. And so here's kind of a, the interesting picture there. If the word of the Lord came to you, it made you a prophet, and you actually could not unprophetize yourself. Jonah still had to carry that word. And then the word would come, and it would be direct a message to a particular people. So take this message to him, that king, that nation, that city, all right? And that was the prophet's job. And that's how it worked. And so the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and the word of the Lord came to Micah, and it came to Jonah, and so on. But something that's significant is that the Bible never once tells us that the word of the Lord came to Jesus. Something is actually very, very different about Jesus, and I bet that a lot of you could guess what that might be. So John's Gospel tells us that Jesus is the Word of God himself. 
So the word of the Lord never came to Jesus because quite the opposite, Jesus himself came as God's very word. And the structure of that then fixes all attention on Jesus. He is a pivotal person in the Bible. Okay, and it sets him apart from everybody else. And if he is the very word, then that means everyone else must listen. And then this is what brings us to his parable. And uh, you can find it in Luke chapter 8, and uh, uh, I'm just going to tell you about that parable. I think that many of you have heard the parable of the sower before. Uh, so a man goes out and he's sowing seed, right? And some of the seed falls on a path, and a path is a, is a trodden way where the ground is compacted. Nothing much grows there, and so it's exposed and visible. Some of the, some of the seed falls among thorns and weeds that are already existent. And some of the seed falls in, in soil that's really thin and underneath it is a very dense layer or maybe just rock. And then some of the seed lands in really good, rich soil. And Jesus says, only the seed that landed in the good soil grows to where it bears a harvest. And the, the other seed comes to untimely and unproductive ends. Okay, and what's interesting in these, these stories is that the disciples were a little bit um, surprised by the fact that all of a sudden Jesus started teaching in parables. Beforehand, Jesus had been teaching in a different way, and then all, they're confused, and so his closer disciples ask him, say, why are you teaching like this? Now, on the one hand, that he had switched to a story format was significant, but on another hand, the way that the details of the story would have been kind of confusing. Like, back then, uh, people were pretty familiar with uh, the concept of somebody sowing seed. It was routine practice for cultures to be growing their own food. You'd see that very often, but very few people would be so sloppy as to sow seed on the path. That is just plain stupid. The, the path, you know, look, if the birds don't eat it, you're going to step on it, right? And very few people would actually deliberately sow seed among weeds, ground that had not been prepared and cleared for farming. And in like manner, if you knew the soil was going to be thin, you're wasting seed, man. And so they're, they're confused by this. Jesus, why are, you telling, why are you speaking in these parables? And Jesus does give them a reply and explanation. He says, yeah, there's an interpretive key to understanding this. There's, in fact, a big picture. And so he explains this parable, and he says this in Luke 8, the seed is the word of God. And what Jesus is actually telling them is that the word now is going to work differently than you saw it in the past. All right? So in, in the past, the word would come and it would make someone a prophet. But now the word is going to come and it's going to make a harvest. Um, in the past, the word would be directed to a particular group. But now, the word is going to be broadcast everywhere. And you're going to see of all manner of responses to God's word. And that word is going to generate a deep harvest in the people in which it does its work. And that harvest is going to be so great well, that the sower is not going to spend his time moaning the wasted seed. Now, I 
tends to think that the disciples said, oh yeah, yeah, that sounds great, I get it now. And they hadn't really got it at all. But then you get into the book of Acts and they began saying, this is coming true before our eyes. Now one thing I'd like you to consider before uh, moving on further is when you sow seed, what do you reap? If you sow barley, what do you harvest? Barley, right? <laughs> if you sow corn, you, you reap corn, right? If, if you sow peas, you reap peas. So if you sow the gospel, what do you reap? And I think what Jesus is indicating to his disciples is that the fruit of this gospel, of this word, is going to smell and it's going to taste and it's going to act like the gospel itself. It has to do so because it is the fruit of the gospel. All right? And if that is what Jesus is saying, he's actually saying is that this word is going to grow and it's going to grow. You get more barley if you reap the harvest. You get more gospel if you reap this harvest. And so when the events and acts begin unfolding, I think Luke is super excited, and that's why he busts out and he says, this whole book is about the word growing, the gospel spreading, and we want to tell you the stories of how it played out. All right, and, and so, the, well, I mean, you know, I normally save sermon application till the end of the sermon, but this one's just too good to pass up. That is a really neat perspective on the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is what we're studying on evening services here, 6 o'clock. I would tempt you with the opportunity of coming and engaging and further and see how God's word, the, the, the parable of the sower, came to life in the book of Acts. Okay. Now, what I want to then say is that the big picture then of the increasing word shows that the word is designed to overcome many challenges. So this word doesn't go unchallenged, but in Acts it says this is how it overcame and this is how it increased regardless. And those three stories where the author busts out and says the word increase, I think are particularly useful for that. And so that's why we're gonna look at them as quickly as possible. So th there's this first story, which is in, the, in Acts chapter 6. So let me uh, turn back to that. And that story from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, shows us that the word increases despite cultural frustrations. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to try to convince you that the problem in this particular story runs a lot deeper than mere disorganization or running out of food, as if... Here's all the widows lined up, and here's a distribution going, and oh, oops, we're sorry we ran out of food. No, there's something that is uh, uh, deeply troubling about this story, the problem that's there, because there is a pattern to the people that are not being included in the distribution. And uh, this pattern has cultural roots, and it causes a deep rift in the church body. And if it were not dealt with, I think that it would ultimately cast disillusionment on the gospel. And that's why I believe that the church takes an impressively big step to correct it. You see, um, 
if this were to happen in today's culture, by all likelihood, the church leaders, if they learned that some people were not being included, they would say, oh, well, we can, this is just a management problem. Okay, and management-wise, well, let's send some extra big gift bas baskets to those people, uh, note cards, apologies, and stuff like that, and we'll develop a better checklist and get a few more delivery boys, boom, done, we can move on. And that's not what the church did. And, and, and so it was good that widows were being cared for in the church. Uh, so widows were among the most economically fragile uh, people in society and were frequently destitute. And they actually needed to lean on uh, societal support in order to really stay alive. And in Acts chapter 2, you find that God had created a whole new community of people through the gospel. And they immediately see the need. We should liquidate resources and free up uh, some economic funds to help care for those who are needy. And in Acts chapter 2, you see a, a, a body of people that is tight and is unified. And then you get to... This chapter, Acts chapter 6, and there's a huge rift, a huge split, a huge challenge to that community of the growing church. And so the problem here is that a particular kind of widow is being overlooked in the distribution. And according to the text, it is the kind of widow who spoke Greek. So if you have a version that says Hellenist, that's what it means. It means a Greek-speaking widow. And in the church then, you should need to understand that nearly everyone in this church community was all of Jewish origin, Jewish background, Jewish ethnicity. But by this stage in history, many of the Jews did not speak the original Hebrew that they used to speak hundreds of years ago. And during the times of captivity and the dispersions, they had ended up, had many pockets that had adapted the trade language, which was largely Greek, and then had forgotten their Hebrew language. But some had hung on, and they still spoke Hebrew. So you have one, one group, the Jews, but it's actually divided down this, and there is a strong tendency for those who still spoke Hebrew to feel, well, I'm a little bit purer of a Jew, and you are a little bit more absorbed into the Roman culture, because that's all you speak is Greek. The, by the way, the language was one of those major thresholds by which a culture would evaporate into a conquering nation's culture. And, and so they would often think that way. As a matter of fact, Paul, in the book of uh, Philippians, and in chapter 3, he gives a list of things that he used to brag about. He used to be proud of these things. And in that, in that lineup, he says, I, the Hebrew of Hebrews. And many scholars actually feel that Paul is saying, I was the kind of Jew that spoke Hebrew. And then Paul goes on in Philippians to say, but that doesn't matter at all. You see, the gospel changed everything. The, the gospel doesn't care if you speak Hebrew. The gospel doesn't care if you speak Greek. Shoot, the gospel doesn't even speak if you uh, care if you speak English. The gospel operates some other way. The gospel does not play favorites. But the food distribution ministry was playing favorites. So the problem is a cultural favoritism is being shown toward those widows who spoke Hebrew. And this doesn't just cause women to go hungry. This causes other people to become upset. 
So the Greek-speaking Christians are upset with the Hebrew-speaking Christians because of this. And that's why favoritism, if it's not actually corrected well, it, it will actually cause ultimately disillusionment with the gospel. Because all of a sudden the fruit of the gospel isn't looking like the gospel. And people will begin to question, is that gospel really for real? If the fruit of the gospel plays favorites, maybe the gospel itself does too. So I think that's why the leaders realized we need to call a church meeting on this. So they call the full number of disciples. How many was that? At Jerusalem in this time, there's about 3,000 believers. This is an awfully big meeting. Um, also, by summoning all the disciples, guess what? The widows who had been overlooked, they were there. The widows who had not been overlooked, they were there. The people that had participated in overlooking the widows, they were there. And the people who were upset with them, they were there. Now, was that awkward? Yes. So it is amazing then that everything is brought together. So I believe that's one reason why the apostles realized the church needs to hear how it should work in the church. And the gospel doesn't play favorites, neither should we. This is not a problem that we could correct. This is a problem we must correct. And they pose a solution that everyone says that's a great idea. And it brings the whole church back into unity. And their widows are cared for. And the rift is actually healed. Now that is remarkable, I would say. Um, and, and so it is significant that then after this, it says the word of God increased. Not just that. Something else. It says... And uh, many priests became believers. Do you know that priests would have been like the hardest people to have won to Christianity? The priests had a reputation for opposing Jesus, hadn't they? And I think that the priests needed more than just stronger arguments. They actually needed to see true religion in motion. And if true religion is seen to be in motion, guess what? That's apologetics. It is convincing people this is true. And so that's why I think it's powerful, and I think that it's amazing that in light of all of the above, the word of God increases. So the word of God is designed to increase despite cultural frictions, and we have to move on. Next we see in chapter 12 that the word increases while the words of men fail. The word increases while the words of men fail. Now, this particular story is politically charged. So there were two cities, Tyre and Sidon, and they were economically dependent on the King Herod. And the King Herod had the power to crush them with an economic embargo. They were utterly dependent on his good favor, but they were quarreling. And they realized how vulnerable they are. And so what they do is being smart, politically smart people, they secured the support or favor of one of Herod's top advisors. So Herod, uh, while he might have been waffling, I bet that his top advisor, this guy Blastus, convinced him. He said, Herod, it's to your best interest to find us, work out a solution. 
And Herod really is all about his own best interests, and so he agrees. And so they, they move forward. Um, Herod moves to the vicinity, and they set up a time, and our text calls it the appointed day. Now, there's an, a man whose name was Josephus. He was a historian that lived during this time, and he, is a, he tells this story. He recounts it, and he includes some additional um, details that are, that are useful to know. Um, so there's a chosen day, but the, according to Josephus, the chosen day is a day that was a festival for Caesar. A lot of people actually think it was Caesar's birthday. Now, Caesar was the emperor. And Herod is just a vassal king. So his, his country has to pay tribute to Caesar. And he's uh, supposed to be a functioning arm of the Roman government and represent them. And uh, so it's on the, the festival day for Caesar that the appointed day that Herod's going to have this meeting is set up. And it's also very big, so they do it outside. Uh, and, uh, and so they have a, like a big arena. They set up the, the, the throne there. And everyone's going to gather, and they do it early, or not early, but they do it in the morning hours. And so the sun is like this, and it shines with a greater intensity on, on, on scenes uh, that way. And according to Josephus, Herod's dress, not dress, his robes, were made of woven silver. So get this, he is absolutely shining and shimmering in the sunlight. He's almost blinding. And that is the context where he sits on his throne and he gives his oration. Can you see a lot of politics happening here? Can you see a lot of, uh, a lot of you know, I'm, I, I have a plan that I'm actually following. Um, and Herod is setting himself out as something splendid. He gives an oration. Now, now an oration is an uh, elevated form of speech. It would far outweigh how, how the common speech, the way that people would talk. You could only really do this if you'd been trained in the art of speech and rhetoric and well-chosen words. And, uh, and I don't know if you've noticed, but polished speech actually is very powerful. Uh, eloquent words can be very moving. Uh, eloquent words can entice you to believe something now that you were reluctant to believe earlier. Eloquent words can make you laugh at the right moment, can't they? They can also often make you cry at the right moment, too. Eloquent words can really shine in the sun. And eloquent words can also have nothing to do with God's word. Now, the people are reciprocal. I don't know if you noticed. There's something odd. It's like, man, are they exaggerating here? What do they chant? They, they, they cry out, the voice of a god, not a man? I mean, do, do you really think that they thought that he had transformed into a god because he has a shiny robe on and the sun was bright? No. Politics is happening here. So this was a, day festi a festival day for Caesar. And the Roman Empire had a cult centered around Caesar that ascribed deity to him. And when that cult was in motion, people had to use godlike language of Caesar. And here what the people are doing is they're chanting, Herod, you are Caesar to us. Your voice is the voice as if it was a god and not a man. And they're doing it on Caesar's birthday. 
the politically correct thing to do would have been for Herod to have given glory to Caesar, right? But Herod seems to have in his mind <clears throat> what Caesar doesn't know won't hurt him. And this is like a high point in his career. Can you imagine having moved from what looked so a terrible, disastrous situation to feeling you had successfully navigated? I mean, this is the opposite. Their flattery is basically saying, we're, we're in it to work with you. You're our Caesar. What a successful outcome. What Caesar doesn't know won't hurt him. And our text calls the question, is there anything that God does not know? Because with the big picture perspective, the focus on God's word, the gospel ascribes all glory to God, not to any man. And so, as you know, Herod is struck down. He's eaten by worms and he breathes his last. Um, a lot of people suspect that Herod had an intestinal parasite called roundworms. Uh, I'm a missionary kid. I'm not going to go into detail for you. But they're absolutely terrible. And it is a gruesome and ignoble way to die. And it's very possible, so he died five days after this, it's very possible that that moment, that was the threshold upon which they, they crossed into completely blocking everything in his system. Okay? And we're not going to go further down that, but get this. Get this, please. Just imagine, while Herod is wearing his silver robe and shining in the morning sun and speaking eloquently, his belly is full of worms. And what is on the inside wins. And this according to Acts, is in contrast to the Word of God. The Word of God continues to increase, and it continues to multiply. And so the Word of God increases even while the words of men fail. The last story shows us that the Word increases despite misuse and superstition and compromise. So there were men who were trying to compete with the power and popularity that Paul had. And God had been using Paul mightily and publicly, and people were all about Paul. And these people then attempt to also cast out evil spirits. And so in this story, seven sons of a prestigious and well-known priest decide to invoke the name of Jesus. Now, um, you should know that when they do this, they're not behaving as faithful Jews. Okay? The, the faithful Jews would not have invoked the name of Jesus. But when they're doing this, they're also not behaving as faithful Christians either. They're behaving as something entirely different. As a matter of fact, um, they're, they're behaving as if Jesus' name was a magic formula or or if it was an incantation or a magic spell uh, probably many of you are familiar with the uh the fictional stories of, of harry potter and in it it casts a, a uh, a story of what it would be like to live in a magical world and there's this this um university where students are going and they're learning to cast spells right wizards and whatever they're they're trying to learn how to do it and it, what seems to be important is that you get the words just right. 
If you get the words a little bit wrong, it won't work. And that you hold the wand just the right way. Or you've prepared this just the right recipe of these and that ingredients. And the timing is just so. Okay? Uh, but right along with, well, let me, let me say this. If you don't get it just right, the results could be quite comical. Right? And those are recipes of how magical power is being presented. Um, but significantly, do the magic spells care about the state of your heart? Do the magic spells care what your motives are? Do the magic spells care if you are on the side of good or if you're on the side of evil? No, none of that's important. What matters is you get the word right. And so here you have these men and they're like, well, let's try using Jesus' name to cast out evil spirits. That's what Paul is doing, right? But they're using it as an incantation. They're treating it as, treating Christianity as if it's just a magic spell, another magic spell. Okay. Let me put it this way. In the big picture perspective, these guys are trying to invoke the power of God's word without actually following God's word. So in, in their mind, Jesus' name was something you could wave at to cast out demons. And it's pretty clear that the demon takes advantage of how stupid they are. So I, I'm sorry, ladies, but a man running naked down the street is not a thing of beauty. And seven of them is crushing and humiliating defeat. The outcome, however, is remarkable. So even though God's word was being misused, it is clear that God's word wins. And so Ephesus had pretty much been the center for magic arts in the Roman Empire. And many of the Christians who were there had formerly practiced those very magic arts. But even though the church had been there for at least two years, Christians still harbored many of their magic books as if they're kind of riding the fence, as if they're compromising a little bit. Maybe that Christianity still operates like a magic formula. And they are purged of their superstitions in this story. And this shows us that in the big picture, there is no competition with God's word. And these Christians see that and they surrender to it. And that's the act of burning their, their books. One piece of silver was probably a full day's wage. And so 50,000 pieces of silver was an astronomical value that went up in flames. And get this, here's the contrast. Those words burned and God's word increased astoundingly. So showing how God's word increases is part of the big picture of this book of Acts. And it helps us to see what's really happening. And and in this little recap that I've given you, we've seen that the word is designed to overcome many challenges. But there's one last part to this, and it's this, that a big picture of the increasing word helps to evaluate our own lives. Let me, let me unpack a few ways that, uh, that I believe that this means. So understanding that the word increases should actually help us understand what it means to be a believer. You see, 
Becoming a believer would then mean that it is the act of taking God at his word. Of actually trusting what God says in his word. And how he says it. It involves surrendering to how God sees things. And that is what called belief is. I guess I'd like to tell you that, that, that this is significant for Christians because it sets up a tremendous safeguard. Because it helps to put Christians on the right path. Uh, this is what actually creates disciples. Taking God at his word would mean that I would then trust to follow his word. And so you, you wouldn't really be able to find somebody who says, oh, yes, you know, I, I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe in God's word. That, that won't work. They come together. Becoming a believer is taking God at his word. You know, I do think that there are many people that would like to benefit from the promises of God's word without actually surrendering to God's word, and, and that is a problem. And that's why understanding coming to faith is the act of beginning to take God at his word. If you're here today and you're not a believer, then I would encourage you to listen to and take God at his word. But another application would be this. A big picture, the word increasing, means that growing as a Christian means God's word is increasing in and through you. If, if becoming a believer is taking God at his word, uh, then growing as a Christian means letting God's word accomplish its work in you. It means trusting his word even better. It, it would mean uh, learning how God's word describes the world and believing it. It would, it would you'd be trying to see life through the lens of God's word and making choices based on that. Even choices that affect your calendar. And let, me, let me give a quick example. Um, a lot of men do need to be motivated to work hard on their marriages. A common motivation that's out there would be that by working on your marriage, it will make you more happy. So let's just think about that. If in the big picture of things, the motivation for working on your marriage is that it'll make you more happy, do you realize how vulnerable that is when you do hit a tough stretch in a marriage? You see, that actually detracts from your very motivation. If you don't have much happiness, you don't have much motivation to work on that. And I think you can see that there's a lot of bad fruit that comes out from that posture. But let's take that and switch it. What if a man's motivation for working on his marriage was that God's word would increase in and through my marriage? And what if a tough stretch then comes? Has that taken away his fundamental motivation? No. This is how God's word sustains people and Christians and churches through tough times. And that's why it's important, I think it's why it's in the book of Acts, that the focus on Christians, the big picture, what is really going on here, is, is God's word increasing and growing in and through my life. If you are able to expand that example I gave from just a marriage to all of life, 
you should see that God words equips Christians to engage no matter uh, to really follow Jesus no matter where they are taken and this is why I believe that it's really important that Christians be familiar with what God's word is and how it grows disciples and that's why in two weeks we are going to start a class that's called disciples of the word uh, on the one hand, this is a class that is about Bible study methods. It's about how to study the Bible. Um, but on the other hand, it's a class about discipleship. It's not actually a class that is for scholars. It's a class on studying God's word for disciples. And how does God's word really carry people so that it may do its work and increase? And because of that, it's going to have some uh, uh, application type sessions that are gonna go beyond study. For instance, one of them would, would be about, well, how would you do with study? <laughs> well, here's a way that you can prepare a small group Bible study from what you've learned in God's Word. Here's the way to prepare a devotional if you're invited to speak at a bridal shower, okay? Here are ways that the study of God's Word can make your prayers more deep. Here are ways that a church can sing the praise of God's Word back to God. So I'd encourage you to think about a class like that. Um, and it uh, starts in two weeks on the, on the 27th. Now, one last application will be this. Growing as a church, so the last one was growing as a believer. This one is growing as a church, means increasing God's word in and through each other. The big picture perspective speaks a lot into what it means to be a church, to be a body of believers. And a huge motivation for Christians going to church is that God's word would increase and multiply among us. And this is a deeper reason for going to or being part of belonging to a church than when Aaron brought up, that's where the cute girl is. And I sometimes think that this feels obvious, but what I want to encourage is away from, uh, look, we have the word Bible out there on the sign, Calvary Bible Church, and we should be glad for all the different Bible-based ministries that happen here. But there's a danger when Christians begin to think that those ministries are primarily the paid guy's job. Okay, so that's what Aaron does, okay? And that's what those Awana guys do. And that's what you know Bob does on Wednesday nights rather than seeing that the work of the word is a work carried out by the whole church. And that's why it's important for a church to realize we are disciples of the word. Okay, um, now one way that this can look is by going to that class Aaron mentioned next week. They say, hey, I, as a disciple, I need to dig deeper into what it means to be part of a community of other believers. Another way that this can actually look is going to a church business meeting, like what they called in the book of Acts. There's a problem, and we need to talk about how we can find Bible-based solutions so that God's work can increase in our midst. Do you think the challenges for churches have gone down in the years? <laughs> no. And what I'm saying then is... That means church business meetings need to go up for the right reasons, but so that God's word 
and increase. Now, another way that this can look is having coffee with a fellow believer to check and make sure we're good, right? Another way that this can look is keeping conversations in the hall about intentional, spiritual, uplifting things that help God's word continue to resonate the lives and hearts of believers. So God's word is designed to increase and multiply. It should be our honor and privilege to be conduits through which it does that work. Our Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the time we've been able to spend in your word. Thank you that it is your power to accomplish your salvation. It's our joy and privilege to get to watch it work and to be conduits through which it so would. And Lord, as disciples, there's always the opportunity of doing a better job. And I would pray that you would work in our hearts that we would delight in devoting our lives and our time, our resources and efforts into that end for the glory of your name and for the growth and health of your church for the sake of your gospel. And it's in Jesus' name that we so pray.